0: Lord, we ask that you would illuminate this passage to us this morning and that you would speak personally and specifically to us as individuals and as a body through your word and through Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Please, Father, give us the grace by the power of your Holy Spirit to hear exactly what it is that you superintended through Coalette and by your grace cause us to rightly receive it and to respond to it and to live in accordance with it. Lord, we know that nothing good Happens, but by your grace and by your will. And so we ask that you would do that for us this morning, that you would help me to communicate this effectively, that you would give us hearts that are receptive to your word, and that by your grace you would cause us to feel our deep longing for eternity, and to not find anything eternal in this world, but to see the utter vanity of this world, to see the fleeting beauty of everything, and by your grace not end up with the same conclusions that Coalette did, but to find the big picture that you've revealed to us in your word and to live in accordance with that and to be satisfied in Christ. We ask that you would show yourself to us, Father, as that all satisfying, eternal, everlasting joy, our deepest desire, our greatest endeavor. Please make yourself that for us this morning. Cause us to see you as that. We know you are that, so we ask you to glorify yourself in this way today. Amen. You may be seated. Please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're working through Ecclesiastes and we've come to the third chapter now. And this passage that we're looking at is one of the most popular passages of the book. And it's also one of the most popular passages of the entire Bible. Consequently, you know, when a passage becomes really popular like that, it also, by virtue of its popularity becomes one of the most commonly misunderstood passages as well. Apparently, there's a, a very famous song written about this, these verses. I didn't know there was a famous song written about it, because I guess it, it's kind of an older song. Um, by the birds, the 60s, thank you. Uh, it's called Turn, Turn, Turn. Um, something goes, you know, there's a time to be born, a time to die, something like that. Um, I listened to it a couple times, so you know I, I know what it is. How many of you have heard that song before? Oh my gosh. I feel isolated up here. <laughs> it's an old song, okay, it's from the 60s. That was like 40, 30 years before my time. So um, that's how most of us have heard it. You know, we hear a song like that and we hear this, you know, it, it sounds nice to us. It's, you know, we hear this ebb and flow. There's a rhythm, there's a change. Everybody likes change. Everybody likes the fact that there's, you know, a time for some things and a time for other things. I mean, after all, who would like a perpetual work week? You know, there's a time to work and a time to rest. There's a time for a week and we like that. Um, Or a perpetual springtime. Imagine always planting, but there never being a harvest. Nobody likes that. Nobody wants that. Um, But that's not what Coalette meant. And as we'll see, as we've already seen many times before, what Coalette means when he writes these things is very different from the way that we oftentimes interpret it when we read it or when we hear it in a popular song like that. Um, He actually intended the opposite. This poem that we find, and it is a poem in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, is in the context of Colette's quest for finality. Um, and it follows the theme of last week in the vanity of toil And in chapter 1. Um, in chapter 1, verse 3, he poses this question for the first time. He says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And then last week we saw this expanded in the fact that all that we do Everything do everything we do in our work, all of the possessions and money we acquired, eventually go to someone else. You die, and that becomes your inheritance and your estate, and that is passed along. And so he says in chapter two, verse eighteen, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And then in chapter and then in, in verse twenty two of chapter two, he asks it again, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? And then we have this poem. It's a Hebrew poem, and it ends with the same despairing rhetorical question. Look at verse 9. What gain has the worker from all his toil? To which the answer is, there isn't. There is no gain. And contrary to what you may have contrary to the way it sounds in you know, the psalm by the birds, the point of this poem is that there is no gain from what we do. That's what this poem demonstrates. It demonstrates the fleeting beauty of everything of everything in this world. And it is everything that he wants to capture poetically here. He leaves no exceptions. He leaves nothing out. He lists instances of everything. As much as he can possibly think of, he lists here. And he shows that everything is only beautiful for a time. And that in a time, the exact opposite will actually be beautiful. Everything is beautiful for a time, but in a time, the exact opposite will soon be beautiful instead. And so sticking with the poetic move, I have five rhyming or Three rhyming points for you. Uh, The first point of this passage is that everything has its time, but nothing lasts forever. That's going to be verses 1 through 11. Second point, so resort to lesser pleasures, for God's plan ceases never, verses 12 through 15. And the last point, unless you're saved by Christ, he is your great endeavor. That's the rest of the Bible. So it's kind of poetic for you. You should be able to remember this. Everything has its time, but nothing lasts forever. So resort to lesser pleasures, for God's plan ceases never, never unless you're saved by Christ. He is your great endeavor. So let's look at the last point. Everything has its time, but nothing lasts forever. He makes this point so eloquently, starting with a poem that we all know very well. It's a very clever device that he uses, but the poetry doesn't really translate well for us. And this is often the case when we're dealing with poetry from another language. Poetry is such a unique, um, it's such a unique form of speech that oftentimes the the literary devices that are employed don't transfer well when you try and take that into another language. And so the Hebrew features um, things like rhythm and pace and structure and internal rhyming. Um, it's not quite the exact same as our poetry, uh, but I want to read you a little bit from the Hebrew just so you can get a taste of what it sounds like. This is kind of what we're missing out on, on the surface. It's actually you know, more beautiful than the way it sounds in English when we read. So here's, uh, here's verses 3 through 4 in Hebrew. Um, just listen, you'll kind of get a feel for the rhythm and the rhyme and the sound. It says, eit la wa eight la pro, la furots, eight So you don't even need to know Hebrew to hear that there's kind of a rhythm and a rhyme, and there's internal structure, and you know, letters sound the same, and words sound the same. It's not exactly the same as our kind of poetry, but that's what's underneath the what's underneath the surface here. And We don't need to worry too much. You know, while we may miss out on many of the aspects of his Hebrew poem as English readers, we still get the rhyming of ideas and we still get the main message. And here's the main message, here's the preface. Look at verse one of chapter three. He says, for everything there is a season in a time for every matter under heaven. Time and season are parallel ideas here. They mean specific spaces of time. Um, Spaces of time for specific things. You know, and then he goes into every matter under heaven, literally. Um, he describes 14 contrasting opposites, 14 pairs of opposite activities. And this is actually a common form of Hebrew poetry which denotes completeness. It's technically called a merism. Um, and so the first pair that he goes into is, it's the first and the last. It's the bookends of life. So look at verse 2. Let's dive into this poem together. He says, a time to be born and a time to die a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. He encompasses the whole life cycle. So with us, it's birth and death, and then with plants, it's seeding and uprooting. That's how he starts off this poem. He says, there's a time to die, and there's a time to be born. There's a time to uproot a plant, and there's a time to plant a plant. Now, thinking about these opposite activities, I want to ask you a question, because I want this poem to have the effect that he intended it for it to have on us. And so we're going to look at a few things and try to try to get the right kind of feeling. I want it to, to, to evoke the right feelings in you, the same kind of feelings that he was intending to invoke in his audiences when, when they were reading it. So let me ask you this first. How freely did you choose to be born? How freely did you choose to be born? You say, I had no say in my, in, in my birth. I wasn't born yet. That's true. How about, how about death? Let's, let's look at the end of your life. How freely will you choose to die? Say, I don't really have... Well, I guess I've got to be careful now. Lots of people have control over the, their death today. Um, that's not the way it's supposed to be. How about this? How soon will you die? You have no idea when you're going to die. You could die tonight. You could die in the next five minutes. Or who knows? Maybe you'll live another 40, 50, 60 years, and then you'll be dead. But you don't know when you're going to die, and you didn't know when you were going to be born. You had no control over your birth, and you had no control over your death. This was completely outside of you. There was a time for your birth to happen, and there will be a time for your death to happen, which you had no control over. These events are, not th- these events are dictated for you. You are subject to the circumstances of time. In fact, you are helpless. You know, how long will you live here? All you can answer to that is not forever not forever. You don't know if it's going to be three, four, five, six, ten, twenty years, but you do know that there will come a time when you will die. Eventually, this is going to end. For example, I was born on December 22nd, 1995, and I will die, there will be a real day where I will die, believe it or not, on, let's say, April 26, 2032. I guess it doesn't give me very many years left. Um, but that, there's a point, there's going to be a real time when I die. I don't have control over that. That's going to happen. And I doubt that the plants that you see outside here in front of the church, I highly doubt that those same plants are going to be there for my kids when they come to this church. I doubt that those plants will be there. By that time, they'll have probably been uprooted for some reason. We see them now. There was a time when they were planted, but there will come a time when they are gone. Everybody that you see. Look around. Everybody in this church, everybody outside this church, all of the people in the streets and in the shops and at the mall and at the theaters, Everybody will be dead in probably 100 years. And with the exception of some people who are just born today and will happen to live 100 years, almost everybody around us will be dead in 100 years. All of, all of these people that you see, there will come a time, in fact a time very soon, where nobody will be here. There is a time for all of them to be born, and there will come a time when all of them are dead. Nothing lasts forever. Let's look at verse 3 a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. Interestingly, um, the positive and negative order are reversed here from the last verse. So you you had the good thing, a time to be born, a time to die in verse 2, and now you have a bad thing listed first, a time to kill, and then the good thing, a time to heal. Uh, But what he's doing here is he's addressing the animate and the inanimate. So you have the animate to kill and to heal, and then the inanimate to break down inanimate objects and to build them back up. You know, one day it might be right for you to kill a man. Maybe you're, at, you know, maybe you're fighting in Afghanistan. You're you know, warring against terrorism and ISIS in Syria. Um, in that context, that would be a right time to kill your enemies. But then there might be another time. Perhaps you're at home caring for your elderly grandmother, and she's sick. And now that is a time for you to heal. That's a time for you to take care of her, to pray for her, to get better. So there's a right time to kill, and there's another time to heal. But once again, I want to ask you, who dictated those activities? You or the time? You or the circumstances? Did you decide that that was the right time to kill and that this was the right time to heal? Or was that dictated by the environment and the circumstances that you were in? Then you can ask yourself, how long will it be before the exact opposite happens? How long will it be before it's no longer a time to heal and now it's a time to kill? You know, we experience this a lot, almost all of our jobs, um, this is the case for. If you're a contractor, you, you know, I, I think about a lot of the older buildings that we see that get torn down. There was somebody who designed that building. There was an architect, there were contractors that worked together to build this building from the ground up. They laid the foundations and constructed it from bottom to top, and now 20, 30 years later, that building gets torn down. And then we have new architects, new contractors, they come and they build something new and they build it back up and then maybe 20-30 years from now that will get torn down and then new contractors and new architects will come in and build something back up again. Either way their work never lasts. You get a new building, that gets torn down, then a new building and that gets torn down. Software engineers often express the same kind of frustration, right? Except the time span is even shorter. They work on a project that within a year or two will probably become obsolete. You know, they're working for something that has such an immediate time frame. And I remember talking, there were a few software engineers um, who were at this church uh, a while back, and this was a depressing fact for them. This was frustrating. It was like everything that they were doing, they felt as if it was futile because it's not going to be used for very long. Soon, the very code that they're writing right now will no longer be needed. It will, it's beautiful for a time, it's good for a time, but there will come a time when it's no longer beautiful, where it's no longer helpful. In fact, where something totally different replaces it. Um, this is the case for all our jobs. If you, if you collect waste, there will be more trash tomorrow. If you preach sermons, there will be another sermon next week. If you help people with problems, there will be more problems again. If you plan space, there will be more seats to change. If you open up bank accounts like me, there will come a time when that person closes their account. There's a time to open accounts, there's a time to close accounts. Eventually that money's not going to be at the bank anymore. They're probably going to take it somewhere else. There's no lasting satisfaction in our toil There's no lasting satisfaction in this world. This lack of permanence, this perpetual change, these revolving activities, tearing down, building up, tearing down, building up, depresses us. It drives us crazy. It leaves us unsettled. It leaves us unsatisfied because we can't find lasting satisfaction in our toil because nothing lasts. Nothing lasts in this world. And he says in verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn and a time to dance. He goes to the realm of emotions. And you have similar emotions here in both verses. Weeping is pretty similar to mourning and laughing is pretty similar to dancing. You know, At first you have the private expression of these and the public expression of them. And I keep thinking to myself as I read these, how freely did I choose this? How, how freely did I choose to be crying right now or to be laughing right now? And how soon will I be feeling the opposite emotion? You know, we have very little control over which situations move us to weep or to laugh or to mourn or to dance. Time is our master. At least, that's what Colette is saying here. If my family member dies, I will cry. If my brother does something dumb, I will probably laugh. If I'm at a wedding, I will dance. Either way, I'm constrained by the season. I'm constrained by the time. And everything only lasts for a time. I am subject to the whims of time. So I hope you're kind of. I hope are kind of feeling the oppression. We're only on verse five. Let's go to verse five next. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. I say cast away stones. That's a that's a weird activity. What made him think of that? It it likely had an agricultural meaning when he was writing this. Um, you know the idea of clearing away, uh, clearing away stones for farmland. Um, and then gathering stones together again to build structures. So what he's saying is, you know, there's a time that's good to throw stones away, and then there's a time that's good to bring them back and to build them together again. I remember, this is a a classic childhood question. When I was a kid, um, I remember I used to think to myself, why would I bother making my bed if later today I'm going to undo it again? Why am I going to make my bed if later I'm going to take it apart? And the answer is because it's morning, it's the right time. And then there will be a right time to get back in bed again. But it's not now. Why will I mow the lawn if it will grow back soon? Why will I wash the car if it's going to get dirty? This is actually not a question I used to ask when I was a kid. I still ask this question. That's why my car is kind of dirty. You know, My family, they, they like to wash their car before on vacation. I always think to myself, why do we wash the car when we're going to go on vacation and get it dirty because it's a long road trip and then we're coming back? Why are we going to do something if it's going to be undone? What's the point? And of course, with my luck, You know, last time I washed my car, there was a a torrential downpour and it got covered in mud and dirt and it was like, that literally lasted only a day. That was a very short time. That was a very short season. So I asked myself, why would I wash my car if it's going to get dirty again? Nothing lasts. Nothing is permanent. This is so frustrating. Notice the second pair he gives here, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. You know, instead of giving antonyms here, instead of giving opposites, he actually lists the first activity And then list the second activity as a negation of that. Embrace or not to embrace. Sometimes it's right to embrace people. Other times it is not. And the same thing rings true here. We are moved by the times. Oftentimes I hear this expression. We all say this. We say, who would have imagined that? And then fill in the blank, right? Maybe if you grew up an atheist, you you would say, who would have imagined that I'd be in church this Sunday morning, worshiping God or listening to a sermon? Who would have imagined that I'm at this job or living to this place? Who would have imagined that I'm marrying this person? Who would have imagined that I'd be marrying Sarah? I wouldn't have imagined that. Who would have imagined that the same stones I threw away a week ago, I'm now building together again into a house? Or, you know, this is something that we've all thought. Oftentimes, you know, we see this happen over and over again in the church. Who would have imagined that the same friend I once embraced and trusted, I am now putting under church discipline. Who would have imagined that this would have happened? We've all felt this. The seasons and circumstances of our life direct us to situations we would have never expected and could have never chosen. Time tells our tale, it it dictates our life, it directs us everywhere we go. And he says in verse 6 a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. The fifth pair has to do with possession here. You know, to look for something and to give up, there's the right time for both. Don't you hate it when when the time to give up is long past, but you're still looking for something? When you should have given up a long time ago, you know, it's time to stop looking for it, but you keep looking for it anyway. You know, there's a right time to stop. And at the same time, there's a good time to keep things, and there's a good time to throw away things. You know, even though for a lot of us, There are some things that we keep that should have been thrown away a long time ago. Oftentimes, though, we still see that the circumstances determine our decisions, whether we're going to keep something or throw it away. You know, for example, if you're moving and you're moving to a house that's smaller than the one that you currently have, or let's say that maybe you have a storage space. You're not going to have a storage space there. That will be a time for you to lose a lot of things. That will be a time for you to get rid of a lot of things because you literally don't have space. You can't take it with you anymore. But perhaps you... Rent another storage space. You rent a box or something. Then that might be a time to keep. Now you have the opportunity to keep. Either way, it's dictated and determined by the time, by the season of life, by the circumstances. Are you exhausted yet? This should be kind of exhausting to listen to. And that's the point. You know, it, this isn't supposed to be a beautiful poem about the ebb and flow of life. This is supposed to be a poem that exhausts you, that frustrates you. Colette says, we are bound by time. And then he says in verse 7, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Unlike the other pairs, there's not really an obvious relationship between these two, but what is becoming clear is that nothing we pursue has any permanence in this life. What I sow today will tear tomorrow. We see lots of examples of this in politics right now. You know, Trump and his administration just took over the White House, um, very different type of administration, the Obama administration, and we're seeing right now, even just this last week, a lot of the exact opposites of what Obama did. He's reversing, you know, just last week, he reversed a lot of the, um, a lot of the legislation that, had, um, that, that was the cause for a lot of restriction on, re- on religious liberties in this country, which is a great thing, and people hear that and they rejoice, but it's only for a time. There's a time for the Trump administration, and there's a time for the Obama administration, and soon all of the things that Trump has done now, will be undone by the president that follows him. And the president that follows that one will undo all the same things that he did. Soon there will be a time when the exact opposite is beautiful of what is happening now. Either way, nothing lasts. Time tells a tale of impermanence. And so the question that Coalette asks is, why do anything? Why do anything? Why reverse the laws if they're only going to be reversed later? Now, the second pair here, it touches on a very important wisdom theme. And If you know your Proverbs and you know the book of Job, you know it's talked about a lot here. I have Proverbs 15, 23 as an example. He says, um, quote, A person finds joy in giving an apt reply. How good is a timely word. Knowing what to speak, knowing how to say it, knowing when to say it is a very important wisdom theme here. And what he's saying is that the time we are in determines our decision whether or not we should speak or whether or not we should be silent instead. And so not only is speaking beautiful in another time, but at other times, the exact opposite is actually beautiful. Not speaking is better. He goes, last pair, verse 8. I hope we're ready to be done with this by now. He says, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. It's fitting that he ends with this. He brings up the strongest emotions, the strongest positions of love and hate, of war and peace. You have the personal, the love and the hate, and then you have the public, you have the war and the peace. And he ends on a climactic note here. Um, And what he's saying is that even, even the strongest opposites are beautiful in their time, even the strongest opposites have their place. And the structure of this verse in particular, it's arranged in a chiasm, which means that you have you know, the positive and the negative, and then the negative is stated again and then the positive. So you have love and hate, and then you have another negative, war, and then the positive closes at peace. That's kind of a way that he brings this poem to closure. That's kind of the way that he ends this. And what he's doing is he's capturing the full spectrum of human experience, saying that everything, literally everything in this world, is fitting in its time. Dr. Kidner, a commentator on Ecclesiastes, describes this theme as the tyranny of time. He he says, Our choices are no freer than the times, than the seasons of winter and summer, of old age and young age, of of war and peace. Time tells our tale, according to Colette. And time tells us that nothing lasts forever, but only for a time. You know, in World War II, the United States was drawn in, even when, they, even when we tried our hardest to resist, in 1941, after the attack of Pearl Harbor, we were essentially drawn, we, we were brought into this, this world war, um, this, this world conflict. We tried our hardest to resist, but the times, the circumstances, in many ways, made it impossible to not do anything else. They dictated our decisions. But neither the war was permanent, nor was the peace that followed it permanent. Both of these were dictated by time, but none of them lasted forever. War is not permanent. Peace is not permanent. Both are opposites, and both have their time. And so we end this poem, and Coalette asks the fitting question. Look at verse 9. It is this. What gain has the worker from his toil? There's no point in doing anything. Why would I do something if a time will come and it's going to be undone? There is no gain. There is no progress. There's no real change. Nothing is permanent. It's beautiful for a time, but soon the opposite will be beautiful. That's the problem we have here. That's the meaning of this poem. then he says in verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Colette sees this toil that occupies our lives, that God, all this work that God has given us to, to do or perhaps to just keep us busy with. And in the previous chapter, he referred to this exact same work as evil. And of this business, he says in verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in this time. The direct object, everything, is all-inclusive. Nothing escapes this remark here. Search and you will find in this world that there is nothing, absolutely, positively nothing, in this world that lasts. Nothing is eternal here. Now, I think it's helpful to explain this word beautiful a little bit. Some of your translations say good, some of it are fitting. Those are all accurate ways to explain it. The word beautiful doesn't mean so much as in, you know, that's a a beautiful picture or a a beautiful piece of music. This is beautiful more in the sense of this is appropriate, this is fitting, this is good for right now in the situation. And what he's saying is that every single thing in this universe is good, is fitting for a time. And then there will come a time when it ends, and there will come a time when it's undone, and there will come a time when the exact opposite is good instead. As Colette illustrates in this poem, the fact that everything has its time brings, quote, two disturbing implications, according to Kidner. He writes, this means that one, we dance to a tune, or many tunes, not of our own making, and two, nothing we pursue has any permanence. So he says, first, this means that we dance to a tune not of our own making. And second, there is nothing that we pursue in this life that has any permanence. According to that time tells a tale of constant change, of impermanence, to which you are subject. There's nothing you can do to help yourself. You're subject to this, and there is nothing eternal under the sun, he says. Nothing lasts. But I want to ask you, why is this such a problem for us? I think we'd all acknowledge that there's a time for everything, that everything lasts for a time. But when we, look at, when we look at the animals, you know, they don't struggle with the fact that they're dictated by the times and the seasons. Your dog isn't concerned about the impermanence, uh, the impermanence of everything. He's not concerned with the fact that nothing is eternal. So why is it such a big deal for you? Why do you even care? Why does it bother you? Why does it bother Coalette? The answer is because God has set eternity in your heart. He has set eternity in your heart. Look at the latter part of verse 11. Colette says, Also, he has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We want what lasts. We want what doesn't change. What we want is eternity. We want to know what it's all about because we are images of God And because God created us for eternity. Quote, he says, God has put eternity into man's heart. That is such a profound line. That is such a profound line. That in your very nature, in the essence of who you are, you are constrained by this deep desire for eternity. Walter Kaiser Jr., a famous Old Testament scholar, when he's quoting... um, ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 speaks of it as this he says that that god puts a deep-seated desire a compulsive drive to know the character composition and meaning of the world and to discern its purpose and destiny when we say that god has put eternity in the heart we mean that he has he has caused us to desire um, so deeply to see the big picture to see the eternal picture to know, as Colette says, what God has done from beginning to end. We want to know the story. We want to know, we want to know exactly what's happening underneath all of this. He's searching for a finality here. He's searching for eternity here. And you need this. You long for this. Everything is beautiful for its time, but we need something. I need something. You need something that's beautiful forever. You need something that's good that lasts forever. This is how God made you. This is what you were made for. But you don't see this in the world. You have to see the eternal picture. The the picture that only God can see. Only God can see the beginning to the end. Only God has access to this grand scheme, to this eternity. But you have to see it too because this is what he's made you for. The problem is, is that the only way we can see it is if God shows it to us. We're all like, little caterpillars crawling around on an ornate quilt, and our vision is so just uncontrollably, helplessly nearsighted. All we see are the little patterns right before our eyes, and it's impossible for us as we inch our way along this quilt to get up and to see the larger picture, to get up and to see the grand scheme of things. That's us. The only way that we could possibly see it is if God tells us. Only God can stand far enough back to see the whole quilt, to see the whole picture from eternity. And this is exactly the reason why God has spoken to us. He has revealed these things to us, and if he hadn't, we wouldn't know. I think we take this for granted so often. Everything that God has revealed to us through his word, we would not know any of this if God hadn't told us. So Coalette, he struggled because he vacated the word of God. And this is what happens when you vacate scripture Colette didn't have God's word, and so thus he was a tormented soul. He's, he, he has, God's revealed these things, but Colette didn't see it. He didn't get it. He didn't know the big picture because he didn't know the word of God. And so you know, he looks out on this world, and on the surface, time tells a tale of vanity and revolving change, but it also tells us of God working below the surface in a deeper way than any of us can perceive. Everything is dynamic and part of God's purpose, with its beginning, ends, and its end, all contributing to God's wonderful, beautiful masterpiece. And Colette knows. He knows that God has given him a desire for finality. And he knows it's out there, but it's elusive to him. And it torments him. And it kills him that he can't know. So I want you to imagine for a second, I want you to imagine that you're out in a barren wasteland, in the desert, And it's hot, and the sun is beating down on you, and the sand is baking your feet, and it's blowing up into your face, and you have the dirt in your face, and you haven't had anything to drink. You're so thirsty, your throat is parched, your mouth is dry, and then you hear a river. You hear a river somewhere. You hear the sound of cool, rushing water. And all you want, all you want is a drink. All you want is something to satisfy your thirst. But you hear it, and you don't see it anywhere. You know what's out there. You know what's out there. And so you keep walking and you keep searching, but you don't find anything in this desert. And you think, how could it be possible that there really is a river here? I know there's a river here. I so want this water. I'm so thirsty, but it's nowhere to be found. And so it torments you. This sound of the river in the background. You frantically search. We all desperately long for this river. We all desperately long for eternity, but it's just out of reach. It's on the tip of our minds. But we can't find it. It's not in this world. And this world is the only place we have to look. And so I want you to see here that this passage is a cry of frustration. Colette is acting as if God is tormenting us. As if he's putting us here with a longing for permanence, but finding none anywhere. With a thirst for this river, but there being only desert. With a heart for eternity, but seeing only the temporal. Knowing that purpose exists for us, but that it's just constantly out of reach so this is torture for him he considers himself unfairly treated by god the agony of not knowing what's going on and i feel for him in this the only reason and listen the only reason that i'm different the only reason that you're different from this poor man is because of god's grace towards you if he had not given you this word this would be you if you were wise enough you know there are a lot of unbelievers who don't feel this that's just because they're not as wise as colette was But if you saw the world the same way that he did, which is the only way to see this world apart from Scripture, you would feel the exact same desperation. And I want you to see now the despairing conclusions that he comes to. There's two. He says, So resort to lesser pleasures, for God's plan ceases never. Okay, that's the second point. This tale that time tells Coalette leads him to two conclusions. One, that you should resign yourself to lesser sensual pleasures. And two, that there is nothing you can do to change the way things are. Both are prefaced with this phrase, I know. Look at verse 12. He says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Basically what he's saying here, if the bigger picture of life is unattainable for us, then we are reduced to lesser goals. If we can't find ultimate meaning, the best we can do is to seek the little sensual pleasures of life. If the big picture escapes us, settle for the little pleasures of this world. For example, you know, he says the best you can do is settle for less. Oftentimes we, you know, we, we find this in our own lives. Let's say you know, maybe, you have, maybe your dream job is to, is to you know, drive race cars, but you settle for a sales job or a business job or an office role. You can't have the real diamond, so you settle for the cubic zirconia. You know, when I was a kid, I really wanted a dog. My brothers and I, we really wanted a dog. And my parents did not want a dog for lots of reasons. They're expensive. You know, you have to deal with taking them out to go to the bathroom. Um, They shed everywhere. And so, you know, we really wanted a pet, so they got us a goldfish instead. They got us a goldfish. We We had to settle for less in that. And I can tell you, I can tell you that it was a little unfulfilling personally, <laughs> and I want you to see in all these situations, these are all so unfulfilling because you want something better. I mean, it's, it's a little bit better than having nothing, now, having a goldfish is better than having no pet at all, but I'm still left with this desperate want. A goldfish is nothing compared to a dog, and so it's almost as if you know, we're out here in the desert and we hear this river somewhere and we want it but we can't find it and so and so Colette says, "Just give up, stop searching for it and resign yourself to something, you know, that's at least a little bit pleasing but less. He says, "Stoop down and build sandcastles. That's the best thing you can do right now. You're never going to find this river, so just start entertaining yourself with this hot sand. Build it up, play with it, do something fun. That's the best you can do." He's just he's literally just recommending here a resigned awareness that, that life's enjoyments are going to come from the small and temporal things rather than the eternal purpose we feel like we were made for, rather than the grand scheme that we're unable to discern. And in light of not knowing the big picture, in light of not being able to find this lasting joy which he's searching for, he advocates that we just give up, that we settle for less. The phrase literally means do good here. So, you know, when you, when you see that, you know, it says, and to do good. Um, or it can, mean, it can also mean to do the best you can. But it's, it's written here in a non-moral sense. So he's not talking about do good as in go do good things or you know, give to the poor or live righteously. It's referring to enjoyment. He's saying go enjoy yourself the most you can. But even with that recommendation, the following phrase, as long as they live, casts a shadow over everything we pursue. He says, yes, build these sandcastles in the sand Oh, those sand castles are going to fall down. The wind's going to blow them over one day. There is nothing that's permanent here. Even these little sensual pleasures, which you're going to chase after, just do that as long as you can until you die. And then you're going to die, and that really just, that's a real damper. That cast, here I was excited about this goldfish, but now it's only going to last for what? A few years? Goldfish die pretty fast. That one actually lasts a long time. Either way, you know, these sensual pleasures, these little pleasures don't last. What does he recommend specifically? The same thing he's already recommended, verse 13. Also, and this also links these two verses together here, he says specifically, I recommend that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. He says drink, enjoy your work, eat your food. These are the exact same smaller enjoyments that he described in verse 24 of chapter 2, actually. What measly joys these are! You know, when you want to have a dog to play with, and you're carrying around a goldfish in a bag, pretending to make it, you know, some kind of pet friend for you, that's nothing compared to what you really want. These measly little, you know, pathetic pleasures of eating and drinking and, you know, trying to enjoy your toil is nothing compared to this this beautiful river that he hears flowing in the desert. He's playing with sandcastles, and he knows this falls so woefully short. And yet at least, Coalette has the integrity to say that not even these minuscule comforts can be taken for granted. Even these are a gift from God, he says. We should resort to these lesser things, to these lesser pleasures. And I am here today to tell you the exact opposite. To tell you not to listen to this man. To not settle for less. Don't settle for the pathetic pleasures of this world when you were made for the glory of God. Don't settle for the temporal when you crave the eternal in your heart. Just because he missed it doesn't mean you have to, too. So here you're building up sandcastles. He's saying, you know, just have fun while you're in this scorching desert. I say, the rest of the Bible says, knock those sandcastles down and keep searching for the river because you're going to find it. And by God's grace, we do. His second conclusion, though, verse 14, here's the other I know. He says, I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing and nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. He says, whatever God does endures and we must put up with it. We hear this and we think, oh, that's such a beautiful phrase. That's not the way he's intending it here. Colette believes that the world is like this because that's what God has made. And he's intentionally vague in talking about everything God does because he's literally referring to all of it. His point is this. No matter how frustrating all this is, no one can change God's plan. Try as you might, whether you like it or not, humans cannot change their situation. You're stuck here. God's plan ceases never. It's impossible to break. His work is permanent. You can't add anything to it nor take anything from it. So he says, don't even try. It's another despairing conclusion. He says you must deal with this tragedy as it is. It's almost like the permanence of death, when you lose someone that you love, you know that there's nothing that you can do to get them back. That's permanent. And so he says, don't even try, except it's worse. With God's plan, this way that God has made the world is even more permanent than death. God's plan is more permanent than death. You can't add anything to it. You can't take anything away from it. God's plan endures. And so you're out here in this desert and you're stranded here. You're bound here. There's no escape for you is this is God's plan. And so according to, God, according to Colette, this was a really interesting part for me, he believes that God does this to strike fear into the hearts of man. And this is not the right kind of proverbial fear that we learn about in Job or the Proverbs where we hear that, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is not that fear. Colette's attitude in all of this is pervasively negative. And so he believes that God acts the way he does to frighten people into submission not to inspire on respect. That God does this to scare you. This is his view of God. And in his last verse, he emphasizes again the permanence of this torturous plan of God. In verse 15 he says, That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what is driven away. Here our poor friend reinforces the fact that what God does lasts forever and cannot be altered. He states, nothing new ever happens or ever will happen. The way it is now will never change, it will always be like this. And he repeats the words, the famous words of chapter one, verse nine, There is nothing new under the sun. Now this final phrase, God seeks what has been driven away, literally means he seeks what has passed. You know, he is saying that God seeks what is sought, what is pursued, literally. It's idiomatically translated to mean that God makes the same things happen over and over and over again. That's what it means. He keeps on seeking what has been sought before. In other words, this tragic tale of time will never change. This tragic tale of time is God's tale, and it's permanent for you. That's the way he sees this world. And so in summary, we have his poem, and we have his conclusions. And he says that everything has its time, but nothing lasts forever. So resort to lesser pleasures, for God's plan ceases never. He gives up, and we leave Colette in despair. Now I could end the sermon, I could just pick up my papers and walk away. Um, And that, that would be doing justice to this passage. That's literally all it teaches. There's no hope here, there's no gospel here. And so if you want to find it, you're going to have to go somewhere else. So I want you to turn to another book that starts with a need. Turn to Ephesians for me. So will be our last point. Unless you're saved by Christ. That's the exception. You know, everything has its time, but nothing lasts forever. So resort to lesser pleasures, for God's plan ceases never. Unless, unless what? Unless you're saved by Christ. He is your great endeavor. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. If you're a, if you're a Christian, you know that something's missing here. His ending does not have to be your ending. I want you to sense your longing for eternity, and I want you to not find it in this world, because it's not there. But unlike Colette, you don't have to die in frustration. You don't have to come to these same two conclusions. Colette vacated Scripture. Eternity, the big picture, can only be seen by God. And so Coalette said in verse 11, quote, Man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Unless God tells you. Unless God tells you. And he has. According to the rest of the Bible, time tells a very different tale. So turn with me to Ephesians 1. Let me show you what God has done from the beginning to the end. Ephesians 1, look at verse 3 with me first. Verse 3. Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father Of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You want satisfaction? There's no better way to start off this line than that. You know, whatever's coming next has got to be good. Every spiritual blessing in Christ you have in heaven. You might as well say in the heavenly realms, how about the eternal realms? Now we're talking about something eternal. Now we're getting down to it. What's this every spiritual blessing? Let's keep reading verse 4. For God shows us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Here's the beginning of the story. Coalette says you can't know the beginning to the end. There's no finality. You can't get the eternal picture. Let's start at the beginning here. Before the creation of this world, God had you in mind if you're saved. God knew you personally. And he set his love and affection upon you before he made anything that's how this starts that's the beginning of this read on in verse 5 in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through jesus christ in accordance with his pleasure and will he predestined you destined means to destination where is he destining you to where are he's taking you to he's taking you to this place this position of sonship Now, that implies something, that you weren't already going to be his son. That you were destined somewhere else before he predestined you to sonship. And where you were destined before, we're going to find out in a minute. But either way, before God made anything, we're seeing the glimpses of a plan that he had before he even made this world. And this plan is to somehow reverse your course, reverse your destination, and predestine you somewhere else, to predestine you to be his son's. So already we're getting an idea of what this big picture of is, what this bigger story is. You have a God who's loving you before he does anything else, and a God who's planning somehow to make you his son. Because right now, it looks like that's not going to happen. Go to verse 6. Actually, in verse 5 he says, In accordance with his pleasure and will, and then verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. And this is a pivotal phrase for us. This is the purpose of all that God is doing. This is the purpose of his story. This is the big picture. This is the real meaning of life right here. He says, in accordance with the pleasure of his will, to what end? To the praise of his glorious grace. That's what it's all for. That's the gain. That's what it's all about. It's about his glory. It's about his praise. It's about the reflection of his greatness and his grace. That's why he does what he does. That's why he created this world. That's why he predestined you and set his love upon you. And eventually, that's why he came to save you. This is all for his glory. It's all about him. It's all about his reflection. That's the purpose behind all of this. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. He has poured out his grace on us. His grace is his unmerited favor. It's his undeserved, unearned favor towards you he says in verse 7, In Christ we have redemption through his blood. Redemption from what? Read on. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. The forgiveness of sins. Here is the problem. God had created you and he created this world, but we sinned. We sinned against him. We rebelled against God. We broke his law. And so we can no longer be called his children. We were no longer the images of God that he created us to be. Here he created us for this purpose of us glorifying him and reflecting him and praising him. And then what happens? We do the exact opposite. We do the exact opposite. We rebel against God. We hate God. We break his law. We break his commandments. And then we're bound in sin and death. Until what? Until God sends his son until he becomes a man for us, to redeem us, to restore us to the position that he created us initially through the blood of his own son, that when Jesus died and spilled his blood, he was paying the penalty that you deserved. You deserve to hang on that cross. Your blood should have been spilled. You should have gone to hell. But Jesus took the full wrath in your place. He redeemed you so that justice can be satisfied, and so that this good God can actually forgive your wicked sins against him. You have forgiveness and redemption through his blood in accordance with the riches of God's grace, in accordance with the abundant treasure of God's unmerited favor towards you, out of his love towards you, which you did not deserve, he became a man for his own glory to die in your place. And to rise again so that you could be raised to life with him. That's the picture. And he lavished this grace on us. There is no greater love. You cannot lavish someone more than giving your own blood for them. He lavished you with all of the riches of his grace that he has. And then he says, he says in verse 9, So, we were lavished with this grace and we were saved to, be, to fulfill this purpose of glorifying him in his glorious grace and to be the image of him that he created us to be. And then he says, he continues on here in verse 8 with all wisdom and understanding, and this is probably the most depressing part of it for me with regards to Colette, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. In other words, God told us his plan. He told us what he was doing. He revealed this to us in his word. He didn't have to, but he did. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to what? According to his good pleasure. He did it because it pleased him. He did it because it made him happy. All of this which he purposed in Christ, he told us his plan, this plan which was to be put into effect when the times times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That's the end of the story. That's the end. Unity of all things, heaven and earth, united, all for the purpose of God's glory. You're saved to be his image. You were lost, and now you were found. God predestined you to be his sons and redeemed you through the shedding of his own blood. And in the end, all of this will be united. When the times time for this, a time for that, a time for this, a time for that. All reaches its fulfillment. You have the end of the story. Heaven and earth united under Christ. So how wrong was this man? How wrong was Colette? You don't have to writhe in frustration with the true plan of God eluding you. He missed the plan that, quote, according to Paul, Ephesians 1, nine, that God made known to us according to his good pleasure in his word. He totally missed it. And yes, while it is true, as Colette says in verse 14, that whatever God does and endures forever, nothing can be added to it, nothing can be taken from it, God's plan is permanent, but the plan is far different than what Colette had imagined it. It is not to torture our hearts of eternity with a time-bound world. It is to redeem a people for himself out of this fallen world. And it is not so that people fear him, as he says in verse 14. It is, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. It is not to make you afraid, It is to glorify himself. And so how wrong is his other conclusion in verse 12 that there is nothing better, quote, for us than to be joyful and to do good as long as we live. There is something far better than that. You don't need to resort to lesser pleasures. You don't need to settle for the goldfish or the fake diamond. The real jewel is right here. You don't need to build the sandcastles in the desert sand. The river is right over there. There is gain from all of our toil. There is purpose and meaning and satisfaction and something eternal. Something, or probably better put, someone that lasts forever, and it is Christ. Everything is beautiful for a time, but I need something that is beautiful forever. And Christ is that one thing. Our deepest eternal desire, our great endeavor, is to have a right relationship with God and to glorify him. And Christ is the fulfillment of that endeavor for us. He is the satisfaction of our eternal desires. And we live that out every day. Glorifying him is your permanent purpose. That's what you were made to do all the time. That's what you were saved for. And Jesus is your liberation from this tyranny of time. He sets you free from this. He gives you a purpose that lasts forever And he satisfies that purpose. He fulfills that purpose for you. You cannot glorify God the way he made you to, but he glorified God for you. And all of his perfect obedience and his righteous life counts as your own. He fulfills this for you. He is your right relationship with God. And so I want you to imagine yourself again. You're wandering through this desert. It's hot. You're thirsty. All you want is water. The heat is relentless. And you hear the sound of this river, but you can't get to it. And then at last... Someone gives you a map. Someone gives you directions to the river. And it's right here. This is it. This is the map to the river. So go drink. Go drink and be satisfied. That water is Christ, and you will drink of him, and of him you will never thirst again. You will never be thirsty again. For all other waters, there is a time to be filled and a time to thirst, but not with this one, not with this river. There is never a time to be thirsty again with him. If only Cole had looked right here, he would have found it. Right down the street at one of the own synagogues he built. With all of the fountains and all of the libraries he owned and bought and all of the books. I'm sure he had probably 10,000 copies of the Bible. Right down the street. If only he had looked right there. He searched everything in this world. But it's not in this world. He couldn't find it. And so he says in verse 1, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. He totally missed it. And don't miss it today. Don't waste your life like he did. Find fulfillment for your longing in Christ this morning. See the bigger picture. See the greater purpose and the fulfillment of your desires and find this in- eternal satisfaction in him. He is your great endeavor. He is your lasting worthwhile enterprise. Everything else is beautiful in its time. Only He is beautiful forever. And I want you to think about this in closing. What a treasure it is that you have found. I want you to be thankful to God because it's only out of His love for you, only out of His choosing you before the foundations of this world that you're any different than Coalette. The only reason you did not end up like this man is because of God's Sheer grace towards you. Otherwise, you would be just like he is. And you would end up in despair in this world and despair for all of eternity in hell. And if you are there, if that is you, then take Christ today. And so Ecclesiastes 3 tells us, everything has its time, but nothing lasts forever. So resort to lesser pleasures, for God's plan ceases never. Unless you're saved by Christ, he is your great endeavor. Let's pray. Lord, we can't even thank you for your grace. Father, no gratitude or gratefulness or praise is sufficient to show our appreciation for your totally unmerited favor towards us. And so we ask, Father, that you would cause us to love you accordingly, that you would cause our hearts to overflow with the deepest gratitude for your grace towards us, for showing us your eternity through the scriptures, and for causing us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to trust in you and to believe this word. And we thank you, Father, for saving us and for fulfilling our purpose through Christ. Lord, that you are our endeavor that lasts forever. Father, that there is never not a time for you. There is never not a time for your glory. Even though everything else has its time and ends, you do not. And you have showed us this permanent, lasting purpose of ours. Help us to live in accordance with it and to live it out and to by your grace find the eternal satisfaction that comes in Christ that you might quench our spiritual thirst forever. We pray this, Father. And if we don't have this thirst, we ask that you would give it to us by your grace. Amen.